Okay, much to talk about as usual whenever we sit down for one of our podcasts. Today there's uh, some pushback in education that we want to speak about. Uh, There's also a battle that is burgeoning right now for the control of the Republican Party. It's been going on for some time between the rhinos and the Trump faction. And we have uh, greater revelations from Special Prosecutor Durham whom many people seem to have forgotten about, but he has not gone away. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the Jamie Dury Podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either go to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending on which device you use, and you can search out the Jamie Dury Show Podcast and subscribe that way. Or you can download the free Podbean app, in either of those two stores, and you can subscribe to the show that way. Either way, you'll be able to leave comments, you'll be able to make uh, leave reviews, and we would really like to get a five-star review from you, so if you can leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. The more reviews we get of a strong, positive nature, the faster the show will grow, and the more we will be able to offer to you uh, in the way of either a phone in line or some live broadcast as opposed to just simply a podcast. So please give us a review. But right now, in recent shows, we've talked about how the left is trying to take over the country by way of undermining our judicial system. They are doing this in several ways. They most recently, one of the most high profile uh, power grabs, although it didn't result in an actual change in the court, was pressuring uh, long-standing Justice Stephen Breyer, uh, probably the most liberal justice on the court, who's now in his 80s, to retire as a preemptive strike, fearing that if the Democrats do not retain the White House and that another vacancy does not become available until that time, and it happens to be Breyer because he's the oldest, they don't want him being replaced by a conservative because that would certainly lock down the court for probably for the next 30 years at least. We have some young justices on the court. The court is now a solid 5-4 conservative and a moderately 6-3 conservative because Chief Justice Roberts cannot be relied upon in every instance. And so they're hoping that if they can get it back to 5-4, maybe they'll get some people they can convert on certain decisions. But if Justice Breyer were to go and a conservative would replace him, it would be a moderately conservative 7-2 court and a solidly conservative 6-3 court, which would basically make the other justices nothing more than um, irrelevant and just token voices of dissension with no real authority. In those cases, many justices uh, elect to retire because they don't feel like they want to spend the rest of their career writing dissenting opinions that have no meaning. But you never can tell with the left because they're big liberals. But right now, we're seeing in the other area where the left is sought to take over the country, and they've been doing so for generations now, the area of education. Now, there's been a big movement in the country in recent years about school choice, And a lot of people uh, have begun to move away from the public school system, fearing that the public school system has become too powerful. The unions uh, that represent the teachers wield too much power within 
the overall departments of education across the country and have far too much to say about what the curriculum is. I believe that the union should be representing the teachers in terms of their municipal laborer status, uh, negotiating for appropriate benefits and appropriate salary, but they should not be determining what uh, the curriculum is. And the most vocal of these is the American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten. Now, Randy Weingarten is now accusing uh, journalist Christopher Rufo uh, of some quotes that he did not utter. And Rufo has struck struck back uh, because she was caught fabricating the quotes. Now, this took place during an interview uh, with MSNBC. She was speaking about Rufo. Uh, who had shared his insight, I'm reading from an article now, on the parent-led movement seeking alternatives to public schools a couple of weeks ago at the college that Betsy Davos founded, Hillsdale. Now, Hillsdale is a big conservative college. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard about it, particularly Mark Levin's podcast. He talks about Hillsdale College uh, and how it stands for the Constitution. It was founded by Free Will Baptists as Michigan Central College in 1844 and assumed its current name uh, nine years after that when it moved to Hillsdale, according to the school. Anyway, Weingarten read a quote that she claimed was taken from Rufo's speech, which he gave at Hillsdale on April 5th. Quote, to get to universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. To sow and grow that distrust... You have to create your own narrative frame and have to be brutal and ruthless in pursuing it. This is what she alleges that uh, Rufo said. Rufo was quick to respond. He accused Weingarten of being dishonest by stitching together two quotes that were completely unrelated and then trying to present them as one continuous quote. And he offered video footage of his speech as proof. He actually said, excuse me, I think you want to create the conditions for fundamental structural change to appropriate some language. For example, school choice. To get universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. Because in order for people to take significant action, they have to feel like they have something at stake. What he's saying is in order for people, excuse me, to be wedded to the idea of school choice, they have to genuinely feel that um, they have a distrust in the public school system, that it's not operating in the best interest of the students and the parents. Now, if that distrust is not there, then school choice is not going to take off. But if it is there, we should have the option for school choice. Uh, He says, I think that the public schools have done a remarkable job at doing that, specifically the public school teachers unions. They shut down schools for more than a year. In some districts, half of all kids never showed up to online learning. That's a continuation of his quote, meaning the public school teachers unions themselves have done a remarkable job at promoting public distrust uh, in the public school system. And they've done so. Uh, by way of what they did with shutting down schools and depriving children of learning, forcing them to wear masks, and and basically resulting in a depressive environment for children. Uh, A lot of children have been severely psychologically damaged by all this. Now, seven minutes in the interview prior to the discussion of universal choice, 
Rufo was addressing the outrage over big companies that are pushing a leftist agenda. We saw that recently with Disney in Florida, and now Disney got its clock cleaned. They were deprived by the governor of their right to self-governance, and now they have to abide by the laws of the state of Florida and pay their own taxes. Um, He addressed the big companies pushing their leftist agenda on children and encouraged the audience to be very aggressive in pushing back. What we're seeing, quote, I think is the first step, is a narrative and symbolic war against companies like Disney, for one example. You have to be very aggressive. You have to fight on terms that you define. You have to create your own frame, your own language, and you have to be ruthless and brutal in pursuit of something good. So you see, he never said you had to be ruthless and brutal uh, against the public school system or the public school teachers union. He was talking about something completely different. And Weingarten, not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer, in my opinion, doubled down on this stuff, saying he doesn't care about truth. He cares about attacking public education. She also went further to say that the fabricated quote is in line with what Rufo would have said. So now she knows what people would have said. So not only is she the head of the teachers union, she is possessed of clairvoyance. All right, this is obviously one of the reasons why uh, people have begun to turn on the public school system with this woke culture and this critical race theory and all this other nonsense they've been trying to force down people's throats. And I can tell you something, Randy Weingarten, who I've followed over the years, is an out-and-out ideologue. She, for her part, doesn't believe there should be any private school. She talks about wasted money being given to subsidized private schools and charter schools, and this is money that's being taken away from the public school system that we could use better. Almost as if the public school system has an unassailable right to control all education dollars and all education in the country, that there's no place for private schools. I don't think so. Public schools are just a way now of people being indoctrinated by a leftist ideology. Because leftists control the school system. And I have many friends who are teachers who are not leftists and say that they are outnumbered and very, very greatly fear making their true feelings known because they will be vilified and ridiculed by their contemporaries. This is an indoctrination center now, public education. It's not an education system anymore. In evidence of additional pushback in the sort of quote-unquote, area of scholastic pursuits, the Kansas State Legislature overrode the governor's veto, that would be Governor Laura Kelly, uh, on the transgender sports ban bill. There had been a bill which would ban males from participating or joining teams or sports designated for females. Now, it does not ban female athletes or girls from participating in men's or boys' sports, but personally, I think that might not be a bad idea. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. But clearly, you can't ask biological females to compete in sports with biological males or people who were born as biological males, regardless of what pronoun they elect to use now. They have an unfair biological advantage. You can't expect a female athlete to lift weights 
on a par with what a biological male can lift. You can't expect a female athlete to sprint on a par with what a biological male uh, can do in a sprint. It's just not fair. These girls train hard. They train as hard as any man for preeminence in their sport. And to have them um, cast aside and have all their labors and their dedication cast aside by stacking the deck with essentially men in women's sports is cruel, it's unfair, and it's beneath contempt. But yet Governor Kelly vetoed that bill that the legislature passed. Now, the legislature in the state of Kansas voted 28 to 10 uh, yesterday to override the governor's veto. Now it heads to the Kansas House for the lawmakers there to try and sustain or override the veto. So this is extremely interesting. And the Kansas uh, State Attorney General is on board with this. And one of the big factors in this bill is that if it's passed, uh, any female athlete who is wronged by people violating this bill, they will be able to seek civil damages through the courts. And I think that's that's spot on. So I'm glad to see that states are beginning to strike back because we need it. Now, moving on to politics, we talked at length about the criminal justice system being corrupted in this country, but there are other things going on. Uh, there is a battle. There is a battle brewing. It's a battle brewing for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. Now, in 2016, in the presidential election, it's clear that the Trump wing won. And I think that the Republican Party did a great disservice to Donald Trump because they were so blown away by his victory uh, that they didn't believe in his innocence at first. They bought in to all this Russia hype. And we're going to get to more on that in due course when we reference uh, Special Prosecutor Durham's activities of late. They started resigning from the House. See, the House has strange rules. The Democrats are allowed to be chairman of a committee almost indefinitely as long as they're in the majority. The Republicans have a self-imposed rule that you can only be a committee chairman for a period of time. And apparently there are so many perks involved when you are the chairman of a committee in the House of Representatives that most representatives don't wish to go back to being just an average congressman or congresswoman anymore, so they retire. So we were forced to defend 45 vacant seats in the midterm elections in 2018, and that's how we lost the House. And once we lost the House, that's when these impeachment nonsense began to rear its ugly head. But within a year of this investigation beginning, and people seeing there was no there there, uh, these Republicans now began to regret the fact that they did not form uh, election committees and run for re-election because they realized that Trump was innocent, that there was no Russia uh, collusion. And so that's how we lost the House. We, hang, we hung on to the Senate, and now we're evenly divided. The, Republic, the Democrats control it because of the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. But I think that majority is very, very slim. I think it's also very uh, undeserved and corrupt because I do not believe that those two Democrats won in the state of Georgia. There was a lot of hanky-panky going on. And it's interesting to note that many of the states now have begun to roll back these specific rules that were put in place only ostensibly because of the pandemic. So much of the hanky-panky that was 
taking place is not going to be able to take place again. Uh, And you also have to remember that it's possible to conduct hanky-panky in a statewide race in certain counties of great population uh, and tip an entire state's electoral total. Uh, It's not possible when you're doing a more local election, a congressional district. So even though there still may be pockets of corruption uh, and uh, nefarious goings-on in terms of vote counting and manufacturing of votes, it's going to be insufficiently efficacious to stop this monumental red tidal wave that is coming. But the tidal wave itself is something we should be focusing on. I'm confident that it will come. I'm confident that the Republicans will take back both the House and the Senate. The question is, who is going to take it back? Will it be Republicans of the Trump wing or the rhino wing? Now, the rhino wing of the Republican Party, the rhinos, have been the biggest problem in the Republican Party. These are the people whom, once they get in power, they don't seem to know how to govern. They forget. They go along. They don't oppose much of what the Democrats do because they're all in bed together, as Trump pointed out. It's a swamp. They're all making money, including Mitch McConnell through his wife. They didn't want to see Trump get in, and they're going to try and oppose him from getting in again because they don't want that swamp drained. They don't want the gravy train to run out. And they're all up in arms now because Elon Musk just bought Twitter. Now they're a little uh, haven where they could promote their agenda and suppress anything conservative is gone. I find it amusing that they're all talking about how free speech may go away. They're going to suppress liberal ideas. Why? You had no trouble and no problem with the idea of suppressing conservatism. You don't even think there should be elections. So my advice to all the listeners of this show and people who care about America and care about our future and care about restoring American exceptionalism is when you vote in November, if there is a Trump endorsed choice available, vote for it. The only excuse, the only justification for voting for a non-Trump endorsee is if there are no Trump endorsees in a particular race. In that case, you have to vote for the rhino because you have to keep the Democrats out of the majority. But if there's a choice of a rhino or a Trump endorsee, you must vote for the Trump endorsee. Even if it means possibly losing the race, you have to vote for him. You have to send a message to the Republican Party that we're not tolerating this rhino nonsense anymore. It's Trump's party. He won because the majority of us supported him. And that's the type of Republican Party we want. A Republican Party that's friendly to business, that allows businesses to grow, that doesn't overly tax the people, and knows how to keep energy costs down and keep our enemies at bay by having a strong military and ensuring freedom around the world. Now, the redistricting is taking place. They do it every 10 years after the census. So, Uh, Peter Navarro, who's a former senior advisor during the Trump administration, he's predicting this swing of seats in the House could go as high as 80 seats or as low as 30 or 40. Now, I believe the Democrats have less than a 20-seat majority. I think it may be 18 seats or something. So it's not going to take much to take back the House, and it's going to take even less to take back the Senate. So we're looking for that to happen uh, very, very soon. It can't come soon enough for me. 
And that's going to be important because as we go forward to 2024, you're going to see part um, powers that be try to marshal their forces against Trump to prevent him from running again. But I do believe we need him to run again, even though he can't be a two-term president because he's already served one term. Uh, if he is elected, freed from the burden of having to curry favor with anyone to run for re-election, I think he'll clean house because a lot of people need to go to jail that did wrong in this country, and it just cannot be forgiven or forgotten. So, with that in mind, moving on to the topic that I wanted to close out the show with, which is Durham's prosecution of Michael Sussman, the Clinton lawyer, and his continued investigation uh, into this Russia hoax. Now, Durham's filings, because the Clinton campaign um, were making filings about what evidence could be admitted. I'll be cherry-picking some quotes from this article here. Uh, As the trial of the lawyer Michael Sussman, he was a campaign lawyer for the Clintons, approached, Durham and Sussman's lawyers were arguing back and forth over what evidence could be admitted. Now, as a part and parcel of those arguments, each party made filings with the court. Um, Now, Durham filed a routine response to a filing that the Clinton campaign uh, made, the lawyers representing Sussman, back on April 15th, explaining why the evidence that he's seeking to admit is both relevant and admissible. And this was earth-shattering, and I'm sure you probably heard nothing about this in the mainstream media, which is why you need podcasts like this to gain information that's not being offered up anywhere. And as an aside, I digress for a moment. Social media, even though Elon Musk is taking over Twitter and that should improve that platform, I remind you that Trump has launched Truth Social, and even though it took a little while to get up and running because so many people flocked to it and it overwhelmed the platform, the account uh, is now, uh, the, the app is rather, is now up and running, and my own account uh, was activated on Truth Social. So if you'd like to follow me on Truth Social, please do download the app, and it's Jamie Dury. <clears throat> J-A-M-I-E, capital D-U-R-I-E, at Jamie Dury 1776 on Truth Social. No spaces in that, in the at Jamie Dury 1776. There's no spaces in that. So please follow us, because every show we post, uh, we'll be posting a link to the show on Truth Social uh, as we go forward. In any event, these kind of filings are common leading up to federal trials, but the disclosures made by Durham and his uh, filings were anything but routine. Now, I'm going to read through this article. Uh, some of it's going to be word for word. <clears throat> Other pieces I will be paraphrasing, so just bear with me. And please forgive me, there's something stuck in my throat. I don't know what the devil it is. But we'll try and get through it. All right, the most striking of these disclosures concerns data trails that Sussman and his cohorts, including tech executive one, Rodney Joff, had supposedly uncovered between Trump and the Russian Alpha Bank. It was widely claimed that these data trails established a direct communications channel between Trump and the Russian government. This is not true. 
Sussman took the data to the FBI in September of 2016, hoping to trigger an investigation into Trump and his campaign. The existence of this investigation would then be used by the Clinton campaign as sort of a media kill shot against Trump in the final weeks of the election. That's what they were hoping would happen. Now, this should tell you something, too. If Trump was so impossible to be elected, all these pundits were talking about, if you look at these people all speaking weeks before the election, it's over, he can't win, he has no place to go. Even that guy Bennett from the formerly of the five saying it's all he can do is minimize damage. If it was that one-sided, why did the Clinton campaign even feel the need to develop this media kill shot? Because they knew that she wasn't that electable. The scheme didn't work, and Trump went on to win the election. But instead of stopping this operation, they just pivoted, and it turned from a media kill shot to prevent his election to an effort to cripple his presidency. Now, in February 2017, just weeks after Trump was inaugurated, Sussman took this same data, these data trails, to the CIA. Now, here's the part that's amazing. We now know, through Durham's disclosure, that the CIA knew immediately that both data trails were fake, finding that they were, quote, not technically plausible, that they did not withstand technical scrutiny, and that they contained gaps, that they conflicted with themselves, and that they were user-created and not machine or tool-generated. Now, the big question I would have, and I'm sure many of you have as well, the CIA is a part of the United States government. If they knew this was false, if they knew it couldn't pass muster, it couldn't pass scrutiny, when these same data trails were being used to impeach Trump, I don't mean technically impeach, but impeach his credibility and trying to implicate him in a Russia connection, why didn't they go to the FBI and tell them This is nonsense. Why didn't they go to the special prosecutor and tell them this is nonsense? Why did they allow a false prosecution of a duly elected man to go on for so many years at the tune of 42 million taxpayer dollars? That's a question for another day. But there are allies of the left in the CIA as well, creatures of the swamp, if you will. Now, this data provided by Sussman consisted of alleged internet lookups between the Trump Organization Alpha Bank, as well as alleged use of a Russian-made Yoda phone in Trump's vicinity at Trump Tower, near a Trump interview in Michigan, and near the White House after he was elected. Now, this phone data was highly questionable, was obvious from the start, because Sussman alleged there were only a dozen such phones in the United States. So therefore, if there's only a dozen of these Russian-made phones... Uh, It stands to reason that high-profile Russians or influential Russians were the ones that had them. And any of these uh, lookups in the vicinity of Trump events might indicate some nexus there. Uh, But that's not true. The information was false. Yoda phones, which are Russian phones, were officially launched in the United States in 2014, two years before Trump ever ran. And as Durham notes in his filings, Between 2014 and 2017, there were millions of lookups of Yoda phones that originated with U.S.-based internet addresses. The sheer number of the Yoda phone lookups has led some to speculate that Sussman and other Clinton operatives 
probably cherry-picked data to make those communications look like something they weren't. In other words, there was real data, but it was being misrepresented by Sussman. Proof of that allegation would have been bad enough, but Durham has now revealed that the CIA determined the data was in fact user-created, it was fabricated. So this is unbelievable. Why did Robert Mueller spend $42 million investigating Trump and keep on forging ahead? The information from the CIA changed everything. How come Mueller and his team never disclosed that the underlining data trail was fake? Not only did they never disclose it, that information doesn't appear anywhere in their report, which is two volumes in length. And you tell me there's no cover-up? There's no swamp? Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it's fake. And it's nowhere to be found in official report that the American people spent $42 million for. Further, Durham's latest filing in this pretrial lead-up also contains two CIA reports that pertain to the agency's interaction with Sussman. They detail how Sussman gave data to the CIA after Trump became president. And crucially, what the CIA notes show is that Sussman claimed that the Russian phone activity continued after Trump's move to the White House. Now, these CIA reports contradict the corporate media's narrative that neither Sussman nor Joff spied on Trump. Not only was Trump spied on, but some form of spying involved the collection and subsequent manipulation of data after he became president. The CIA also notes, I'm sorry, their notes also reveal that the data had been collected since April of 2016 which coincides with the start date of Sussman's efforts to tie Trump to Russia on behalf of the Clinton campaign. In another move that signals a shift in Durham's approach, Durham has laid out details of the coordination that took place between Sussman's cyber operation and British ex-spy Christopher Steele's dossier that was being run by Fusion GPS. Now, this is probably maybe the most significant Part. You all know Christopher Steele, that discredited ex-British spy who wrote a dossier, made it up. This is the dossier that said that Trump had hired two Russian prostitutes to urinate on a bed where uh, former President Obama may have slept. Well, now we know something. They've known since last year that Sussman and Steele represented two separate prongs of the Clinton campaign's efforts to smear Trump as a Russian stooge. In other words, they had two separate operations, two separate ways of doing this. Now, based on media representations, they want you to believe these two things were unrelated. But we also knew that in late July 16, these two prongs sort of converged directly in front of the FBI's opening of its investigation into the Trump campaign. Because Steele and Sussman met in Washington, along with several other Clinton campaign operatives. Now, up until now, in all of Durham's work, he had not connected these two prongs of Clinton's campaign, focusing mainly on Sussman's alleged crime of lying to the FBI. All that has changed. In his filings to the court, Durham said that Sussman and Steele 
were two parts of the same joint venture. Now that announcement moves us closer and closer to possible conspiracy charges being brought by Durham against participants in this scheme. This connects Sussman directly to the Clinton's campaign's broader efforts to crucify Trump and establish a motive for Michael Sussman's actions. Now, Durham states Sussman worked, I'm sorry, represented and worked for the Clinton campaign in connection with its broader opposition research efforts, and that through his coordination with Steele, Fusion GPS, and Joff, that Sussman took states, steps to integrate the Alpha Bank allegations into those opposition research efforts. So this is getting extremely interesting. Apparently, Durham is now focusing on the fact that Sussman personally told Steele about the Alpha Bank data trail at their July 2016 meeting. Now, that's extremely interesting. He told him about a data trail that we now know was false, and he knew was false. And this was prior to Steele completing the dossier that he wrote with alpha allegations in it. This is extremely interesting. Now, something is going to hit the fan because Durham has offered two individuals in the Clinton campaign immunity from prosecution in exchange for their testimony. That aside, to my knowledge, all other representatives of the Clinton campaign are standing on their Fifth Amendment rights. Now, perhaps they weren't offered immunity, and so it was a choice of either speaking and risk prosecution or clamming up. They chose the latter. They chose the latter. Now, one of these individuals, Durham has not named. That should be interesting. The fact that he didn't name the person could indicate that it's a high-value person. The second person we do know, his name is David Dagon. He's an IT operative from Georgia Tech. He was part of a small group of IT specialists that were asked by Joff to find data that linked Trump to Russia. Now, Durham had previously revealed that this group of IT operatives knew they couldn't manufacture any claims that would fly public scrutiny. These same operatives also admitted in private that the only thing that drove them to do what they were doing was that they just did not like Trump. Hey, you can not like somebody all you want. That doesn't give you the right to drag them through the mud, crucify them, and lie and commit crimes. Can't do it. So Durham has now told the federal court that he gave Dagon immunity as the other IT operatives in the Joff group invoked their right against self-incrimination, as I told you a few minutes earlier. So we've got some very, very interesting things that look like they're about to come to pass. And I think that by extension, you're going to see other things uncovered. We also now know, as a separate matter, prosecutors in Maryland and elsewhere are looking very, very seriously into Hunter Biden, and they may bring a prosecution against him. Now, if that happens is no question that Joe Biden will be implicated. And because of legal precedence, they say sitting presidents cannot be charged with crimes, but it would certainly prove that he's corrupt and that he knew everything that his son was doing and that he was profiting from it. But it's also clear that Joe Biden is not home. His dementia has reached 
levels, which obviously renders him incapable of discharging his duties. The majority of Americans now feel that uh, he's not running the country. It begs the question, who is? Most of us suspect it's former President Obama. It surely isn't Kamala Harris because she's dumb as a stump. And we also know that there's been inquiries by Nancy Pelosi and other people to figure out a constitutionally permissible way of removing Kamala Harris as vice president, because they obviously plan on getting rid of Joe Biden prior to the end of his term, and they don't want her taking over. It should be interesting to see who they do get to replace Kamala, if they can do it. And I do believe that the prosecution of Hunter Biden, if it takes place, will be used primarily to leverage the resignation of Joe Biden. Mind you, when he does resign, and you heard it here first, he will not admit it's because of any impropriety on the part of his son. He he will not admit it's because of any impropriety on the part of himself, and will instead say it's completely unrelated, and he will cite health or otherwise personal reasons for his decision to step down. But time will tell. More on that in upcoming episodes. In the meantime, please click that subscribe button on your podcast app, whether it be the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store, or download the Podbean app. We need more uh, followers. We need more reviews. And your additional reviews will help us get both more followers and, in turn, more reviews. Until next time, for the Jamie Dury Show podcast, I'm Jamie Dury.